Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. And 50 years are gone like the swoop of a swallow. It's an afternoon in early summer 1971, and Pat Clowry and myself are standing on the roadside at Newlands Cross, ahead of the Friday evening hitchers. I've skived off my last history lecture of the week, as I often do on a Friday, and even though the exams are looming, needs must. Pat and I are the Friday night DJs at the exotically named Trudeau's Discotheque in the old cinema in Castle Dermot. We each do a one-hour set before the band takes to the stage. Getting on the Nace Road early means we've a good chance of making it home before tea time catching a lift or two before the single female hitchers scupper our chances. As we stand on the roadside, thumbs in the air, I turn to Pat. I want you to do something for me. And that is? When you're doing your set tonight, I want you to play I Am, I Said. Come on, Pat laughs. Me, play Neil Diamond. That would be my credibility tattered in three minutes. His set is normally filled with Van Morrison, Neil Young, The Doors and Led Zeppelin. Neil Diamond is definitely not cool. Listen, I say, naming a young woman we both know. She'll be there and I want to ask her to dance and that's a good song. I think it'll help. It's got that existential angst and a bloody good tune. Play just that one song. Tag it onto your crazy love and only love can break your heart set. I'll even buy you a budget la roche for your inner poshta. This is the kind of slick exchange that seems hip at Newlands Cross in 1971. And I'll finish my set ten minutes early, I offer. Give you 70 minutes before the band comes on. That is the clincher. All right, but never again, Pat says. And with that, a lorry slows and stops. Where are you pair heading? The driver asks. Castle Dermot. Ah, the centre of the universe. Hop in and we're on our way. Seven hours later, in the soft wash of the disco lights, a slow set begins with crazy love. And I cross the floor and pop the question. Would you like to dance? The answer is non-committal. A shrug. A glance at the friend's and a measured, uncertain saunter onto the crowded floor. While we move slowly to the rhythm, I try to make conversation, but the initial replies to my questions are monosyllabic. Yes. No. Dunno. However, by the time Van Morrison has finally gone crazy, and Neil Young has had his heart broken, and the opening chords of the Neil Diamond song are ringing round the disco, I have established I feel some kind of rapport. The answers to my questions have become multisyllabic, and I'm even asked what I'm studying in UCD. And then a comfortable silence falls between us and the young woman seems to relax into my arms. It's on the second chorus of the song that I make my monumental blunder. As Neil Diamond sings, I am I said to no one there, and no one heard at all, not even the chair. I join in without realising I'm singing. 
The young woman steps back, holding me at arm's length. Are you talking about me? she asks. No, no, no. God, God no, I stammer. I, I just like the song. The, the lyrics are good. She shakes her head slowly and remains at a very, very unsocial distance until the music fades. Would you like to stay on for the next set? I ask. She looks me straight in the eyes. I imagine the slowly strobing lights weave their romantic spell between us. And then she speaks very softly and very sincerely, slightly adapting the lyrics of my Neil Diamond song. Did you ever read about a frog who dreamed of being a king, but never became one, she asks. Because, except for the names and a few other changes, you'll always remain one. And with that, she's gone through the mill of dancers, back to her friends in the seats to the side of the dance floor. I stand there for a moment and then glance up at Pat behind the turntables. He shrugs his shoulders as if to say, I did my best for you. And then he mimes to me that the long-promised bottle of orange would be welcome. And I make my way to the mineral bar. Neil Diamond's words still ringing in my head. And I am lost and I can't even say why. And by the time I turn to look again at the dance floor, the place is empty. And fifty years have passed like the swoop of a swallow. Ellie is fine, the sun shines most of the time. And the feeling is laid back. Palm trees grow and rents are low, but you know, keep thinking about making my way back. Happiness is a cloud drifting across a blue sky. Just when it becomes a familiar and recognisable shape, it changes into something else entirely. It is summer and the meadows on the Long Mile in Palatine are bursting with colour. The heat of the land and warm breeze still carry the familiar smell of horses. The large field near the wood doesn't look like anything special now, but when I was a child, the field known as Burton Hall was a destination. The first time Miss Brady, who ran the riding school, chose you to collect a pony from Burton Hall, you knew you had arrived. At ten years old, happiness for me was a pony. I had the kind of freedom that meant I could leave my home in Carlotown and cycle the six miles to Miss Brady, who lived in the extraordinary ruins of Ducats Grove, a neo-Gothic pile that had been all but burned to the ground in 1933. On Saturday mornings, early, Miss Brady would gather capable children and heap them into and onto the bonnet of her white van. We did our best not to fall from the vehicle as it lurched around the sharp bends. Other road users could be seen swinging frantically into driveways or perched on verges as we passed. She had a talent for clearing the roads. Like most things about Miss Brady, her driving was unpredictable. At Burton Hall, the ponies would again prove they were no fools, galloping from us 
before finally lowering their heads and accepting their harnesses for another day's work. On ponies with bellies full of grass, we would ride the three winding miles back to Duckett's Grove. With no room for saddles in the van, we rode bareback, preferring the more rotund type of steed. We gossiped, as children do, about things of great importance. The donkey's new foal, the wolfhound that ate the kid goat, Lucky Slip's departure to a racing trainer, Gothopig's relation to Rock Barton, Captain Jerry Mullins's famous show jumper. There were so many rites of passage I went through to become one of Miss Brady's workers. Tackling the gander was one of the first complications. Who'd have thought that an oversized duck would want to kill me? I understood the significance of winning the battle with him better than he did. He wasn't to know that my desire to be considered hardy by Miss Brady was far greater than my fear of him. And that gander could sense fear. In the end, I took up the spade to which, once raised with intent, he submitted. It was as simple and as difficult as that. The dramatic ruins of the old castle of Duckett's Grove provided the perfect backdrop for Miss Brady's riding school. Animal lovers gravitated towards it and... Once discovered, it would change a child. Becoming one of Miss Brady's workers bestowed on us a swagger, not unlike that of our four-legged equine friends. Time spent in Duckett's Grove was part and parcel of growing up in Carlow. We weren't moneyed children. The £5 weekly fee of other riding schools was beyond us. The opportunity to work, to earn our keep, was not something we took lightly. With no running water and Miss Brady's needs must ringing in my ears, I never flinched when it fell to me to empty the bucket from the dry toilet. Having peaked at ten, one could be forgiven for believing that happiness was in the bag, that the joy of those days would endure. But that indefinable cloud keeps changing shape as time canters on. I'm quick to recognise happiness now. It looks like a spectacular ruin, feels soft as the downy velvet of a newborn donkey foal and sounds like the laughter of my companions, Gillian Maddock, Robert Hayden, Fergus Farley and the wild, unforgettable Waddock sisters. There might not be a man in the moon, but there are man-made artefacts on its surface nonetheless. Many of these were placed there by the departing Apollo 11 astronauts at the conclusion of their mission on the 21st of July 1969. There is an audio disc containing messages of peace and goodwill from 73 world leaders, Neil Armstrong's and Buzz Aldrin's space boots, a variety of tools, bags and boxes, and a commemorative plaque on which is inscribed a list of names. On nights of full moonlight, the townland of Corduff, outside Carrickmacross in County Monaghan, receives its own share of luminescence.
It is from this small place in 1928 that a young man climbed into a horse and cart to commence a journey that would change his life. Benny Callan was 21 years old when he decided to emigrate to America. He was one of many who grew up in the shadow of the Cordoff Sturabout House. Today the structure stands as a memorial to those who looked to its kitchen to feed destitute starving locals in the years of the Great Famine. Benny's horse and cart brought him to Bally Bay, where he caught the train to Derry and onwards via the anchor line to America. He was a farm labourer who possessed nothing more than a primary cert and a suitcase full of dreams. In the new world, he settled into the manual work he was so used to back home, but here there was a difference. He had a chance to avail of educational opportunities. Benny had an aptitude for engineering. Perhaps there is something in the water in Cordoff. Over the years, it has produced more than its fair share of amateur inventors, men who built private aircraft in hay sheds, and who look to the skies above their heads rather than the ground beneath their feet. In a similar manner, Benny Callan saw opportunities arising from America's aeronautical ambitions. In 1961, when John F. Kennedy pledged that within a decade his nation would land men on the moon and return them safely back to Earth, our Benny was already established and working in the industry for Grumman Aerospace. The Apollo 11 mission needed a craft that would descend to the moon's surface, land safely and return again to the orbiting mother ship. Grumman were tasked with designing and manufacturing the lander unit and Benny Callan led the team who successfully produced the vehicle that was so famously to become known as the Eagle. A high degree of brilliant engineering and an equally large sprinkle of good luck made the Apollo 11 mission possible. I have stood and looked up at the reassembled Eagle lander in the Smithsonian Space Museum in Washington and wondered how something so frail and insect-like could perform the tasks assigned to it. If you listen back to the communications between Mission Control and Armstrong as they performed the ascent to the lunar surface, it is the stuff of sweating nightmare. They overshot the original landing zone by two miles had to operate the controls manually and, with only 23 seconds of fuel remaining and to the backdrop of a succession of mission abort alerts, they finally landed the Eagle on the Sea of Tranquility. Sometime later, Buzz Aldrin accidentally damaged a circuit breaker that was repaired by inserting a pen into the faulty unit. In spite of all the mishaps, Benny Callan's moon lander performed to perfection. As well as carrying out routine tasks and collecting rocks, the astronauts placed the message of peace and goodwill flags and some plaques on the moon's surface before departure. One of these plaques has Benny Callan's name proudly inscribed on its face. The boy who departed Corduff in a horse and cart achieved this accolade a mere 40 years later. Benny sometimes returned to Carrick Macross on holiday, his nephew, Mickey Birdie, acted as chauffeur during these trips. And Mickey tells me that Benny was fascinated how the roads around Corduff always seemed smaller and narrower during these journeys. 
If your sights are set on the moon and your name is spelled out on the sea of tranquillity, this mortal ground must surely feel inferior. Four forward, drifting to the right a little. Ready? Down a half. 30 seconds. Forward, drift. Ready? Contact right. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Hours of the Swifts at Clonmacnoise. Matins has him dreaming in slow wave sleep. He's that high he can pull stars for a cope. The far eastern skies are tinted rosy. Away west the moon fades a pale goodbye. At Lord's, the brightening blue of the dawn glides him gently on boomerang wings down to their sanctified site on the river. Here his beloved waits in the tower, their nesting nook in a masonry gap. In summer, after ten months' flight, they stop with the rest of the scream at St. Charon's hallowed abbey, adjacent to Shannon's drifts. Within the ruins, the swifts restore their nest, sorely neglected all winter. In loving warmth, they hatch their clutch of chicks. He feeds them from the bolus of insects harvested from his swoops amidst the swarms of midges and gnats clouding at the streams. The helpless swiftlets gobble from his beak the nourishment they need for the eight-week fledge. These rituals are marked by cathedral bells, the hours of terse, nones, the vigil before his favourite hour, blessed vespers. When he shoots out from the roosting crevice, skims the river, a quick drink before flight. The evening breezes tell him the day's heat has made majestical cumulus clouds, puffballs in late sun, glowing pinks and golds. He lets robust thermal currents gather underneath his spread open wings, power him higher and higher in widening circles, like devoted servants bearing him skywards into the receiving heaps of haze. Through the long line of pillowed streets, he sails smoothly, not a feather stirring, fixed, uncurving, effortlessly soaring. He senses breezes soothing him to sleep. Their lullabies float him even further up. Far-flung sunbeams on tumultuous waves sprinkled diamonds. In a half-doze, he waits for dreams. The pictures flicker in his brain, Snapshots of valiant Scandinavian swifts steer marauding flocks from everywhere in Europe, fleeing from icy winter. 
they blacken the skies above St. Chiron's, the cathedral, round towers, gravestones and churches shadowed on the riverbanks. Images of processing white-cowled monks, their solemn chanting wafting up to him, Fulget Crucis Mysterium, his own mystical cruciform straight-lined body, wings thrown wide in praise of the deity. He is as high as he has ever been this night. Fixing on the spiralling down, he pulls up, fully alert with a jolt of his wings, adjusting his dive to halt like a hummingbird right outside the gap. He waits for her to signal she's warmed up the nest. He enters, allowing the chill from the flight be bathed away with gentle up-and-back brushes from her silken wings. He embraces his family, arranging for the culminating hour, Compline, the pious observance, the day's work done. Do they hear the supplicating prayers of the great silence, in manus tuas domine, into thy hands, O Lord? Yes. Fervent Benedictine plain chant echoes round the mystic midnight ruins. He knows he must tell the swiftlets of October's expedition only eight weeks away. How, when gusts scatter the leaves, they will fly from the round tower, down river, veer south to where the estuary opens out on stormy Atlantic, join gigantic congregations of swifts to navigate over the Azores, swing around the swell of western African shores, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Ghana, voyaging deep into the Congo, their wintering playground. There, above the green canopies, crowning the lush equatorial trees, they will frolic in the hot sun, feasting on mosquitoes, fat spiders and flying bugs, swing down to Lake Kivu for an evening drink, snatch sweet sleeps and couplings on the wing. The months will flash by, their feathers silvered by sunshine. They are well fed and rested, ready for the monsoon rains to chase them west and north over the baked Saharan sands, the blue-green Mediterranean, Spain, France, to the refuge of St. Chiron. Here, after continual flight, just shy of a year and a million miles, finally their tiny feet alight on solid ground. Cathedral bells peal a welcome. Shannon waters wave them home. In the chancel arch, a crack in the stonework of the nun's church, they will fashion a new nest, raise their own clutch, make real their dreams. He will teach them how to catch gnats and midges in the swarm on the river, how for a drink to skim, show them tricks to cement the nest with spit, bequeath secrets and legends of the swift. But it's the observance of the hours, the most enriching of all his treasures, the ways to witness from morning to night what bells summon them to prayer at first light, when to exult in high noonday sunshine, descend to sanctifying eventide, provide for the swiftlets, protect the nest, reflecting at vespers how they are blessed, safe within St. Chiron's sanctorium, 
where screams of swift in summer are reborn. Last week, I went out to buy mothballs because I'd found a suspiciously large cohort of some small beasts lurking in the bedroom the previous night. They were only little moths and one had climbed inside my nightdress and made its presence felt crawling up for air while I was reading in bed. I remembered when the wardrobes at my mother's used to reek of those purple camphor confections, but despite the best efforts of the staff in the local hardware shop, all they could locate in the area of pest control was a fly swatter and a packet of mouse traps. However, my trip wasn't wasted because on the way out I found a shelf displaying some books and the one that caught my eye was a bright red paperback with the author's name in fancy gold lettering. Maeve Binchy, the ornate cursive script read, Dear Maeve, a collection of articles from the Irish Times. I've been a big fan of Maeve Binchy's ever since the days when her column in the Irish Times was the first thing I read in the paper on Saturdays. She was a successful novelist, living, I imagined, a very sophisticated life in London and I was a primary school teacher in a small town with a husband and two young children. I loved Saturday mornings when we all went to the library, then the coffee shop, then took a stroll around the town, always finishing with a visit to the book centre to get the paper. The minute we were home, I commandeered the feature section so that I could read whatever unasked for advice Maeve was dispensing that day. Maeve's lifestyle seemed impossibly elegant, so her advice on things like how to apologise if you got paralytic drunk at a posh party or how to behave if you spotted your son-in-law canoodling with a woman who was not your daughter was not relevant to my life at the time. But I loved her practicality around more mundane issues, like the Christmas when she was broke and couldn't afford to buy gifts, solving the problem by hacking down a holly tree in a friend's garden and presenting everyone with a large bunch. Or the importance of alerting a friend who has emerged from the ladies with the back of her dress bunched up in her knickers. She was like the big sister, the cool cousin, a trendy teacher that you could approach for advice on how to deal with the minor snags, the little nips and stings of everyday life. What would Maeve do was my mantra in those years. I used to compose letters to her in my head, agreeing with her recent ruminations or asking her for advice. Of course, I never actually wrote to Maeve and in later years, I was sorry that I'd never let her know that her column was the highlight of my weekend. Recently, I was in an awkward situation that would have benefited from some words of wisdom from the great advisor herself. There was a funeral. One of those small, forlorn COVID funerals where a small group of family and friends gathered in the cemetery to say goodbye to a loved one. We were at the graveside feeling terribly sad. The prayers had been said 
And just before the undertakers placed a board over the grave, I spotted a middle-aged man. His face stretched into a kind of rueful half-smile, a blue medical mask hanging jauntily under his chin, moving towards us with the speed and purpose of a man on a critical mission. The small crowd parted and he stood before us. But what came out of his mouth was not an expression of sympathy. I believe we're in the presence of a famous writer, he began. And when I struggled to find an appropriate answer to this observation, he continued, I hear you've written a book. Some small, charitable part of me assumed that he was trying in his own awkward way to congratulate me on the publication of my first poetry collection, so I murmured what I hoped was a modest-sounding thank you. But he'd already fixed my husband with his regretful half-smile. I hope, he said to my husband, that you get some of your money back from this venture. His face broke into a full, satisfied beam and he chuckled gently as he shifted his gaze back to me. I don't think I've ever had a temptation like that before. A male chauvinist had galloped out of the dark ages with the express purpose of insulting me and now he was standing right in front of me, his back to an open grave. For a delicious moment, I imagined leaning towards him and giving him a good shove. But I didn't. Of course I didn't. Instead, I linked my arm through my husband's and managed a kind of shy smile. My husband, I said, cool as anything, isn't my financial backer. He's more like my inspiration, my muse, actually. That was the best I could do under the circumstances. But I think Maeve would have approved. Honeysuckle days. We knew them as honeysuckle, the flowers growing in the hedgerow of our grandmother's West Cork home. Fuchsia with crimson skirts, ethereal as Disney's Tinkerbell fairy. The magical draw of pink and red petals. How we would break the stamen, suck the drops of nectar with a pure hunger. Two weeks every summer, listening to the crest and ebb of her accent, primrose pattern aproned, her delicate sugar melt baked Alaska, her fresh peas shelled from the pod, the fragile china kept under lock in the good room, how she held newspaper to the fireplace to coax a fire, her hugs, her rolling laughs, the pitch and pull of her, Mother, grandmother, widowed at thirty. The loss, heart held all her days. Her wide, swan-like wingspan that could crush in defence of her nest. We were learning histories, the gifts of strength, as we filled up 
with the honeysuckle nectar. God's teardrops reinforcing the bonds of love. On this morning's programme, we heard I Am I Said, I Think, by John McKenna. Children of Duckett's Grove by Angela Kyo. The Man in the Moon was by Joe Carney. The Hours of the Swifts at Clanmacnoise, a poem by Daniel Reardon. What Would Maeve Do by A.M. Cossens. And a poem Honeysuckle Days by Denise Blake. The music today was I Am I Said by Neil Diamond. Coppoline Dove in a High Roof by Zoe Conway and John McIntyre. Moon Glow by the Benny Goodman Quartet and before that sounds from the Apollo 11 moon landing. Sibelius, Symphony No. 5 in E-flat major, the third movement, played by the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Pavo Jarvi. And Respect by Aretha Franklin. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And for more about the programme or other arts and culture programmes, take a look at rte.ie slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.